You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. For decades, milk has been fueling women marathon runners as the OG performance drink. And in the new docu-series Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers takes us on a journey of self-discovery as she meets several groups of empowered women runners to find out what drives them, what fuels them, and what pushes them to go the distance. And in the process, she learns that she too can be a distance runner. You can watch the series at runningsuckstheseries.com and register for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon at everywomansmarathon.com. Hey, it's Max. Before we get started, I want to tell you quickly about a sponsor that is making today's show possible. It's Audible. Audible is a leading provider of premium digital spoken audio information and entertainment on the internet. They've got more than 180,000 audiobooks and spoken word audio products. What does that mean? They basically have any book you would ever want to listen to. So imagine you're like listening to, uh, say, the long form podcast. Maybe you're listening to the Tanahasi Coates episode, and you're hearing about this book, Between the World and Me, and it's won every award imaginable. And you're like, that book sounds pretty good, but I don't have time to read. All I have time to do is listen to things on my commute. Now you can listen to Tanahasi Coates read his own book on Audible for free. How do you do it for free? Go to audiblepodcast.com slash longform. That's audiblepodcast.com slash longform. You'll get a free 30-day trial. You can start listening to that book immediately. And here's the thing. They've got basically everything. If you've ever listened to an episode of our show and thought, huh, I'd like to listen to that book, they've got the book. Go try it, audiblepodcast.com slash longform. We're really excited to have them sponsoring the show. And here is that show. Hello. Welcome to the Long Form Podcast. I'm Max Linsky. I'm here with my co-hosts, who are Aaron Lammer and Evan Ratliff. Gentlemen, hello. Hey. Hello. Hey, guys. Welcome. Winter is here. Welcome is. to 2016 all over again. We're all going to be sick for the next, like, <coughs> at least two months. Yeah. Yeah. But you can listen to podcasts we tape in the past when we were healthier and happier. <laughs> <laughs> I'm pretty happy. Yeah. Yeah, I'm pretty happy. I did an interview this morning, which is the one that uh, people are going to listen to now. Who was that? Oh, wow. Brooke Gladstone. Uh, Brooke is the host of On the Media. You guys might listen to that show, On the Media. I do indeed. Uh, She also wrote a book called The Influencing Machine. It's a comic book, and it basically traces 2,000 years of media history. It's awesome. I interviewed her at her house, at her dining room table. Uh, Her husband, who's a journalist named Fred Kaplan, was upstairs trying very hard to be quiet. And uh, it was just delightful. I had a great time. I, every Monday morning should start with me going to Brooke Gladstone's house and having coffee and asking her a lot of really personal questions. Only, only if she, she's open to that. Shouldn't just show up next time. I would, Monday morning, I'm going to be there. Brooke, if you're listening, I'm coming to your house on Monday morning. Uh, how about sponsors? What do we have with, among those? Uh, I have a podcast recommendation for you guys. Oh, okay. Sponsor Ooh. podcast? Yeah, Radio Open Source mm. with Christopher Lydon. It's, uh, it's on WBUR. It's also a podcast. It's an interview show. If you like our show, I think you will like their show. They just did this great one all about, like, uh, Star Wars and why Star Wars, why exactly Star Wars. Uh, but he's a great interviewer. I have actually learned quite a bit, I feel like, from his interviewing style. And uh, you should check them out. Love a great interview. I know you do. As always, we are supported by MailChimp. If your business sends email, there's no better way to do it than with MailChimp over Eight million businesses already do. This business, long form, and this other business over here, the Atavist, are already using MailChimp. So should you. And now here's Max with Brooke Gladstone. Uh, okay. You know, when I was a kid, WNEW FM was like, FM was just really starting up as the alternative hippie place to go. Yeah. And they had all of these really quirky DJs and only one woman that I can remember who would be on at night and her name was Alison Steele and she practiced what I later learned was something called the proximity effect where she gets 
right into your head because she would talk like this. Hi, this is Allison Steele, the Nightbird. I'm here with you, and and it all has to do with just leaning in. Do you ha- do you lean in when you normally do? Uh, not like that, and and not with the sultry tone. Sometimes, if I feel like I need to speak quietly, there have been a lot of horrible events, as we know, uh, that we've been covering. And so, like if Sandra Bland gets killed, I don't declaim. I'll just I'll just come in her closer and I'll talk more quietly. Is that a conscious thing or a natural thing? The natural thing is to want to communicate what you feel. Well, no, the conscious part is that. How I do it is I don't even notice anymore. Actually, I don't know if it really, I'm sure it has had some impact, but my degree is in theater. Mm -hmm. I did uh, summer stock and uh, dinner theater, and then I washed out really early. (laughs) I mean, I was... 23 when I pretty much gave it up. But I did get a lot of training in using my voice. My very first job was working for a, couldn't be more bottom feeding, for a strip mining trade association paper from which I was fired. And <laughs> for what? Uh, not fitting in with the, the culture. Basically, it's very self-aggrandizing. But I was really young. I, and I, you know, and this was all about the industry. And I said, you know, it was probably 1980 or so. And I thought, oh, here's an issue that we can really get ahead of. And it'll, it'll be great. You know, I had done things on new sedimentation pond technology and how to create kios for your employees and stuff. So I thought, this is this is real journalism. This is this is what I'm gonna I'm gonna do. And so I sat down at the at the staff meeting, which had the head of the, you know, organization and all of that there. And I said, "There's this issue. It's get it's starting to get a lot of press. I think it'd be amazing if we did a whole huge cover thing on it and really get ahead of it." And I started taking out my documents and I said, "It's called acid rain." <laughs> and I was fired a week later. <laughs> <laughs> so you're 23 you'd, you'd already flamed out of the theater and then were fired from your first job yeah that was my uh that was my first job do you uh, still follow strip mining news no no i was desperate i mean I, I really was i'd also been fired from every single waitress job five in dc were you i was bad? the worst waitress why because i was so angry <laughs> <laughs> if people you know if somebody treated me disrespectfully i would tear up their order on the way to the kitchen and i i would pretend i couldn't speak english and <laughs> stuff like that it, it, it didn't endear me and i and i didn't want to get fired i probably did but i was really it was a bad time you know it's all food stamps and and i was frequently on the dole and i was panicked i was sure i was going to end up like in the movies with a a bottle of Thunderbird in a brown paper bag sitting on the curb, you know, in my old age. So, because uh, my my family was not good at, at money. So we were always, never poor, but always broke, you know, had a number of bankruptcies. And there was always uh, a vague anxiety that my parents wouldn't share with us. But there were a lot of us. There were six kids. Where were you and the six kids? In Long Island until I was about... 12, and then we went through in Syosset, then we went to, which is sort of middle-y, low-ish middle-y, depending which part of Syosset, and then my parents went through a brief rich period, and so we moved to a kind of upper crust part of Huntington, and then that just completely went out the window. Where'd the money come from? Uh, He had stopped being, my father had stopped being in the wholesale woolens business, a business that he'd inherited from his father and went to stockbroker school and became a stockbroker. And, you know, he was a terrible stockbroker. <laughs> we had, we, he started during a boom. So he made all this money and my parents could never save. So they spent it on this really great place and they were there for about four years. And then one week we're doing fine and next week we're doing terrible. And the third week he's driving a truck for somebody else in the neighborhood. And then we moved to Vermont. So that's where I had my senior year of high school. Wow. Are you, I mean, we should say we're recording this in uh, your house, Mm -hmm. which is a beautiful brownstone in Park (laughs) Slope. It's gorgeous. Not in the fancy part. 
Okay, sure. Not in the fancy part. But are you now, uh, like, did you figure out money? Are you good with money now? Well, my husband is, uh, actually, we're both kind of, we're both kind of shitty with money, to be <laughs> honest. We're not as bad as my parents. I mean, we have a sense of proportion. Well, it sounds like the bar is pretty low. <laughs> okay, so how did you get from a uh, panicked waitress getting fired on purpose, even though you were worried about money, to journalism? Well, and this is the part where I give advice to young journalists, I, I definitely suggest sleeping with people. <laughs> no, obviously, you, it's harder now. There's more diseases than there were in the late 70s. It's still a pretty effective strategy, I think. <laughs> um, my last job, a place called Columbia Station in D.C., there was this guy who came in and said, uh, hey, I live around here. Uh, in fact, I live right next door. We should go out sometime. And, and so I sat down and said, how much money do you make? And can you get me a job? <laughs> and... Uh, and then I was fired shortly after that, and he managed to track me down to another place that I worked. I had three jobs at that point, and he, uh, we went out, and you know, he said, and we were. Ta- he's he was a specialist in defense, working for a congressman on Capitol Hill, and uh, he said, he told me about the MX missile and a few other things, and said, you know, you could. And I expressed opinions immediately. <laughs> he said, you could do this. You could write this. He was of the belief that anybody who was relatively smart could write, which isn't necessarily true. Writing is different from being smart. Many smart people really don't write that well. And there are some people who write really well within their genre that aren't necessarily, you know, members of Mensa. So so he said, why don't you write this article for Inquiry, which was then a kind of left-leaning libertarian magazine, about the MX missile? And I said, okay. And then he went and he wheelbarrowed a bunch of material to me and said, I'll see you in a couple of weeks. Basically, you know, he didn't help me at all. He gave me some phone numbers and, and a bunch of material. But I did write it. That was my first article. Okay, just so I understand. A guy walked into a restaurant, <laughs> hit on you. You said no, got fired from that job. He found you somewhere else and said you should write an article about missiles. Well, we had dated a, maybe once or twice. Okay, that. you went on some dates. And he saw in you... A journalistic mind that would be uh, equipped to write a lengthy (laughs) article about missiles. Yes, that's what happened. And you had not up to that point been particularly interested in journalism or writing? No. And then sat down with this wheelbarrowed trove of documents and wrote an article about missiles. That is true. That is a a unique origin story. (laughs) (laughs) If you want backup... He's upstairs. You can ask him. Ah, there you go. <laughs> All right. So now we're getting somewhere. Now I'm starting to understand. You are uh, married to a journalist. Fred Kaplan have, have been clearly for a long uh, while, missile era. Well, it took five years after that. We, we had many breakups. Oh, yeah? It was a complete pain in the ass in those days. <laughs> breakups initiated by you or by him? Uh, they were initiated by him acting like a jerk and me packing my bags and leaving, basically. What's it like being married to a journalist, to someone who thinks about journalism as much as he does and as much as you do? Like, is that a, just a constant conversation in this house? <laughs> I know people always think that. No, it really isn't. It really isn't. We'll have arguments from time to time about certain things on which we really ha- hold very different views, or at least enough of a difference that we could have an argument about it. No, we grew up together, basically. I have a friend, a brilliant friend, Deb Amos, and uh, we see her all the time, Middle East correspondent for NPR. She's always talking about the Middle East, and she does it with such nuance and fascination. You are drawn in. You know, you can't stop listening to the things that she's been told and the things she understands. And for me, it's almost always a flight from it because the beat that I have is largely meta. For three years, I was in Moscow. That was a story with blood and guts and uh, profound characters and narratives. Uh, Now I'm at a story where perpetually where I have to kind of construct those forms 
to put the story in in order to give them any juice or resonance. Every time someone brings up a story in the office, you know, at every editorial meeting, the first question asked is, why should we care? What does it matter? This is not a business show. On the Media is not a business show. It's not a technology show. It's not even a journalism ethics show. It's all about the consequences to the news consumer. And a lot of times, our show will just be about narratives and framing. And it isn't about journalism, journalist X on cable network Y did this. It's about what is the message you're getting? Let's pick it apart. What, what are its elements? How do you defend against it? Moscow was physically hard. There was a lot of running around and a lot of editing and a lot of phone calls. But this one is the hardest job mentally that I've ever had because you have to keep a subject that might seem intrinsically inside or uninteresting front and center, its consequences, its stakes. What are the stakes of not understanding this? What are the stakes to the average person that this is actually going on? It's so hard that when I come home, to get back to your question, mostly I catch up on Doctor Who, <laughs> read science fiction, uh, I make hats. And you make garden. hats? Yeah, I make hats <laughs> and uh, crochet them almost uh, compulsively. They're, they're not nice hats. I want to look at they... these hats after this. <laughs> I can show you some. Uh, and uh, I'm constantly in a decompression mode. So we don't sit here and have elevated discussions unless uh, one or the other of us has a question that we really feel we have to explore in a safe space. And then we provide that for each other. So you don't do that processing work here? No. Yeah, it sounds like there's a lot of processing work. I mean, basically what you're saying is like the narrative is not sitting in front of you and you have to kind of go find it. So w when do you do that work? That is the work that's done uh, with our staff, the best staff we've ever had. In 15 years, I mean, I've always said no one should ever have a job more than 10 years. And here I am in the 15th year of this show violating one of my principal rules. I mean, there are some people who should stay on their job forever. You know, there are especially court reporters. Those guys, the best ones, are on it for decades and decades. There are certain beats. I'm on a beat, but I'm also a talk show host, and you can start becoming a self-caricature. You could start falling on easy ways of responding to things. You know, a kind of a rhythm, a bum bump at the end of a story. Do you or feel like you've avoided that? I hope I've avoided that. It's been my intention always to avoid it. But in order to do that, you have to be genuinely curious at every moment so that you aren't falling back on a rhythm or a routine. You know how it is when you hear someone and they ask a question and you expect that question and it's all there and you know it's there. I always have a fantastic prep created by a producer in front of me. But it's so I can offload that part of my brain and I can listen really hard and see what I genuinely care about. But even that is hard work. Sometimes I have to work myself up so that I genuinely care and am genuinely curious about something that doesn't naturally make me care or be curious. How do you work yourself up? First of all, tons and tons and tons of reading, like, you know, the producers will send me all their source material and whenever I can, which is most of the time, I'll read everything they send me. And I'll come up with other questions, ones that I go, yeah, but what about that? that you know, that's the beauty of having more than one brain working on a thing. I mean, when people hear an interview that we do, it's the process of at least two and sometimes three brains, uh, all of whom are directed at this, the same thing. And hopefully, creating a kind of laser clarity. So again, we, don't we know what we don't know. The problem is that there's so much assumed knowledge in this area. And really, it's a great morass of forces. It's, it's, like, it's like tracking uh, waves of water. You know, they, it's just unpredictable. Hey, this is your other host, Aaron. I'm going to pause things briefly for a quick word from our sponsor, Igloo. 
if there was an easy way for your corporate communication department to share company news, stuff like new employee onboarding or changes to the company benefit plan, what if all your employees could find all the information they needed in a single unified space? What if you could break down silos and share information more efficiently? Sometimes cultural shifts start with technological ones, and for that reason, I recommend Igloo. It's an intranet you'll actually like. That's intranet, not internet. It's a single unified communication system for all your employees where everyone can keep on the same page. You can try it for free and learn more at igloosoftware.com slash longform. Thanks, Igloo. Our next sponsor is Squarespace. I actually have a photographer friend whose website I made many, many years ago. That website went down this week, and she called me to help her get it back online. The error was mine, but my advice was not, let's get this site back online. It was, please, please move this site to Squarespace. Save both of us the hassle. Um, Almost everyone needs a website these days, whether it's a business site, a portfolio, a restaurant menu, what have you. Uh, But it's not very easy to put one up yourself, especially if you want it to look great on an iPhone in all different kinds of places, and you don't really know code that well. No one really knows code that well. I don't even know code that well. So what I want you to do is check out Squarespace. They have intuitive and easy-to-use tools. Plus, you get a free domain if you sign up for a year. Amazing support. What's stopping you? You don't even need to put in a credit card to get a trial. So I want you to go to squarespace.com. You're going to put in offer code LONGFORM. You'll get 10% off your first purchase and support the show. Thank you, Squarespace. Here's Max with Brooke Gladstone. What percentage of the questions that you ask in an interview are ones that you and your producers have come up with beforehand? That varies so much from interview to interview. I mean, when we're not sure what we're trying to elicit, I would say maybe half the questions are uh, the ones that are on the paper. Uh, when the interview isn't yielding anything interesting, then I end up layering on a whole bunch of additional questions. If someone is telling a story that I've read, and basically I just want them to tell it to the listeners, I'll, I'll go through and I'll just jump in for what I think might be the telling detail, even though I don't know what it is. Do you ever not find that genuine curiosity? Like, Do you ever do an interview and you just... You don't actually give a shit? No, I don't allow myself to do that. That's why it can get kind of tiring. If I think I'm not going to be interested, and this is, this is a give and take between Bob Garfield and myself, there are certain kinds of stories that he's just much more interested in than I am. And there are certain kinds of stories, again, that I care a lot more about. I am more interested in how we process information than Bob is. I really want to know what we do with a piece of information, whether we reject it, whether we embrace it, whether we change it or deliberately mishear it, how it changes over time, and how it resounds, right? Bob is very much more journalism-centered in a lot of ways. There's no one who takes umbrage uh, more satisfyingly than Bob. We often joke that we ought to have a special segment, you know, every month called, you know, how do you sleep at night? (laughs) Bob Garfield speaks to, you know, a journalist. And (laughs) so you're five years past your own deadline for how long someone could be in a job. How, how is your relationship to your job changed in 15 years? When the jobs started, it was much lighter. It was 50% culture. You know, we did things like Broadway. Bob did an amazing piece about vanity license plates. Anything that we could define as media, and we still do that, we defined it really, really broadly. Any way that people communicate with each other. Uh, You know, we talked about, you know, early movies and a lot about the evolution of, say, the images of black people through media or the images of gay people through media or And so, you know, we talked about a lot of those cultural transformations. And we started in January of 2001. By the time we got to September 11th, we had a big shift, obviously. We started talking about issues of privacy. We started talking about freedom of information and freedom of speech and issues that we called 
enabling conditions stories. That's how when people say, why are you talking about, uh, you know, the Patriot Act? What's that got to do with the media per se? And we would say the enabling conditions of journalism are being eroded. We started branching out from there. Uh, a few years ago, we did a piece about the uh, opacity of the Department of Homeland Security and how people's rights at both borders were being routinely violated. People would say, how is that uh, media? Well, it's opacity. It's information. Information has become much more of what the show is than media per se. Media, of course, plays this enormous role, but it's not the only thing, and it doesn't have to be the primary thing. I'm glad you brought up that border story because I wanted to ask you about it because I had the same question, and I wondered whether that was a product of where your interests and curiosities led you, like whether that's how you stay in a job and keep producing a show for that long as you just follow your nose and that's what you got interested in, or whether a radio show or any show, I guess, uh, that stays on the air for as long as you guys have necessarily needs to evolve and broaden its interests. It has to. Like Radio Lab and This American Life, like all these shows that have stuck around for a long time are really, really different and much broader, I think, than they were when they started. Is that just like a necessity of... Uh, continued life? Yes. I mean, can you imagine being boxed into some narrow definition of media and having to talk about it every week and make it matter? I mean, I care about not wasting people's time. I would tear the flesh from my face. <laughs> I remember thinking, uh, I, my office is very close to Jad Abamad of Radiolab. And often we're the only ones there late at night. That happens at least sometimes. And I remember once late at night, you know, he just said a few years ago, if I have to do another piece on neuroscience, I'll just blow my brains out. And I said, you know, if I have to do another piece about anything to do with Fox News, I'll blow my brains out. And Radiolab has changed its tagline, right? It used to be, you know, have a science-y tagline. Now it's, a, it's, quote, about curiosity. And I remember when they did that, I went back to Katya Rogers, our executive producer, and I say, I want to be about curiosity. Can't we be about curiosity? <laughs> yeah, what, uh, <laughs> what doesn't take that tagline? Is that more about you or is it more about your audience? Like, is that need to expand necessary for keeping yourself interested? Or is, does your audience need you to grow as well? Because there's got to be some portion of On the Media's audience that really would love it if you guys just rip Fox News every week. <laughs> and another that just wants us to talk about the newspaper business. And another part of the audience that just wants us to talk about journalism all the time. Of course. But fundamentally, and this is the answer to your question, what we are offering them is, we hope, the experience of learning something they didn't know, something that we didn't know before we started exploring it. In other words, making that 58 minutes be compelling and enriching and maybe helping to clarify the world just a little bit as we proceed through the years, through our whole exploration. In other words, it's about that hour. Now, if that hour is about Star Trek, <laughs> and it still illuminates something about the world we live in, and it's compellingly conveyed, that's worthwhile. So it's all about the relationship with the audience. It's not about, oh, time to check in on the media news. That is not a show I wanted to do. I was on the media beat for six years. I was NPR's media correspondent right. before I went to this show. And the point was, I got to define it any way I wanted. And I wanted, it to, I wanted to define it in a way that would keep me interested. I wouldn't write, want to you know, write a book that no one would want to read. And in this world, let's face it, where you can find out anything you need to know if you have a driving need to know it. I don't have to be a one-stop shop for media news. All I can provide is what the program in its current 
configuration with its current staff, which is brilliant, is a unique experience that is the product of these individual minds and not try and be the end all and be all of media news. Do you know what I mean? Yes, yeah, great. It's a great answer. It's like, it's uh, touched on like 15 things I wanted to talk to you about. I, one of them was the tension between cynicism and optimism, which mm. I think is part of what you're talking about. Like the idea of being a media news media reporter for one day longer than six years strikes me as a very difficult challenge to not get cynical about this business and doing your show for that long. Also, I think pretty difficult to not become cynical about Mm -hmm. media. Do do you think of yourself as cynical? Well, here's the thing. What's the alternative? I mean, yeah, the business is screwed up. Yeah, there are horrible practitioners, but there's also magnificent work being done all the time. It isn't that I'm starry-eyed about the state of the media today, whether or not we're talking about the business models or the practitioners or the race to the bottom or the, uh, the constant boomeranging of falsehoods throughout the ether and all the things we talk about, you know, the lack of clarity, the, the lying, the, uh, the repeating of lies, the false balance, the, all the things that we've talked about on the show. Uh, all that happens, but what's the alternative? This is the way we talk to each other. And the more broadly that we, we define media, which can be Facebook and Wikipedia and all the other emerging ways, then what we try to provide is some tools for for navigating, you know? And that is not a cynical enterprise. Once I was asked this question by Bryant Gumbel, of all people, (laughs) how would you rate the media today? Which I have to admit, you know, is a question that yeah, that's a terrible. And question. you know, it was. I was on a panel. We were all on stools, and he got to me, and he wanted to give me to give it a grade. You know, and I said, okay, I would grade it A, B, C, D, <laughs> and F because it's as varied as humanity. That sounds right. <laughs> oh, okay, agreed. I think maybe what I was asking was more personal than that, which is, do I get depressed? Sort of. I mean, like, you are encountering, describing, trying to wade through, trying to uh, interpret and translate bullshit all the time. You're, you're, mm-hmm. You look at a lot of F grades. You know, you look at a lot of A's, but you look at a lot of F's. And w- what I was wondering was, do you ever come close to doing whatever the equivalent in your job is of tearing up someone's order on the way to the kitchen? <laughs> I see the media as a mirror of our society. I see it more as the kind of slime that floats to the top, maybe, which, you know, reflects whatever horribleness is going on underneath or beauty. Uh, But the thing that gets me depressed is the things that the media cope with badly, but not because the media do it badly, but because the things are so horrible. Like, for instance, we talked about the coverage of the shootings of unarmed black people, the arc that they took, how it's evolved, when they're covered well, when they aren't, when the behavior of of a police department stops the rage in its tracks, or at least mediates it because it's honest and offers the tapes and names the perpetrator and engages with the community. You know, the the whole arc of coverage reflects what's going on underneath. And what's going on underneath is what creates the sorrow for me, that creates genuine sadness for me the stupid racist things that are said during a campaign. I hate the fact that they're repeated by the media, but I hate the fact that they're said even more. So I see the media 
And, and you read my comic book. So you know that there's this tension between people who think that the media drive the public's view and those who believe that the media reflect the public view. And for me, I've always seen it, and I've had 15 years to see it, and actually plus six years over at NPR, as a, as a push and pull. The media want to stay in track with the public. Sometimes it gets a little ahead, but it doesn't want to get too ahead because then it's called elitist or out of touch, but it doesn't want to fall too far behind for the same reason. So it keeps trying to guess what the public, whatever that is, is thinking. And, and, and you see this after an election. They were, were they voting about, you know, like a couple of elections ago, they were saying that the, it was the cultural things that was, right. that were bringing out the, uh, you know, the, the evangelicals, and they were turning the election. And so it must be about gay rights. And then, you know, eight years later, it's, it turns out, it's not about gay rights. And it wasn't even about gay rights then and polls and how badly they reflect who we are and what we believe and, and all of that. We don't really know. I mean, <laughs> I, I haven't read much Kierkegaard, but I do know <laughs> that Kierkegaard hated the idea that there even was a public, that it, he thought it was some sort of commercial construct. But this is all the public, this is all the media writ large, at least the commercial media, the journalism media, the traditional media care about is trying to track the, this mythical beast, this Sasquatch that we call the public. So... I don't expect great things from the media. So that's not what makes me want to tear up my order. It's, it's what goes on in the country that is so appalling that makes me want to tear up my order. The other thing that's in your, in your book, in your comic book, uh, which is called The Influencing Machine, which I did, in fact, finish <laughs> this morning. Uh, in a way, the whole book is about what you just said, which is, None of this is as clean as we'd like it to be. None of these answers are as black and white. And as, never and has been. I mean, that was right. the whole point of the book. You start with the invention of the written word, and then you leap ahead to the middle of the next. It's basically 2,000 two years of media history <laughs> in like 160 panels. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. good. That's true. And it's fantastic. And I'm wary of getting too deep into it because I feel like uh, we'll, we'll, we'll never leave because it's actually 2,000 years of history. <laughs> but there, what you're talking about, the, the sorrow that is beneath... Uh, the sludge that comes up from the media <laughs> is that what is driving you is like that what allows you to do this job for five years longer than you expected to like it, it, it clearly like you're you're bringing that emotion to the show yeah that is true if I stopped caring I'd have to quit I quit NPR where I was doing quite well I was filling in for Scott regularly I was uh, a correspondent that owned a beat and everybody loved the pieces and I got along with everybody and I had my own voice back then even more than a lot of people. I remember uh, the uh, executive producer of ATC, All Things Considered, wrote me once saying, how nice that they let you speak in your own voice or something like that. Uh, I was given a huge amount of freedom, but I was getting bored with the way that the beat was defined. And I wanted to get off of it. So I said, give me a demotion, which it kind of was, make me general assignment. And they said, no, no, we like you where you are. And then I realized that I was so restless that I was on the verge of self-sabotage. If, if I'm not fully engaged, then I start to deliberately screw up like my restaurant. I guess <laughs> there's a thing, you, you know. You I, were thinking about how to tear up the ticket. I, I was, you know, that is so weird, but yes. And, you know, because I can't consciously just say I have to leave the job because I come from such a financially insecure background. It's just, it's wrong. Were you thinking so, for a second, like, maybe I'll become a stockbroker? <laughs> right. Just like my dad. Um, and so uh, Dean Capello, who was uh, at... WNYC and trying to relaunch on the media, it wasn't doing very, it was really circling the drain because there wasn't, and there weren't any resources in it. And the host, who is a brilliant journalist and a fantastic talk show host, and anybody who is in New York is familiar with Brian Lehrer, he didn't even want to do it anymore. 
And uh, so he was, Dean was asking me for a couple of years, and it was like, go to a media show? And then he did a loss leader. He let me do pilots of a call-in show about relationships that I co-hosted with Dan Savage, who was I in... I read about that. <laughs> Dean even admitted it was just to get me to come to the station and see that it wouldn't be so bad. That show must have been great. <laughs> so in the end, I went to On the Media, even though... Everyone at NPR who'd never heard of the show thought it was insanity. Why would I do that? But it wasn't the first time that I've left a job for a job that seemed a lot more dubious just so that I wouldn't be bored. Boredom is my biggest fear. It's even, it terrifies me even more than being broke. <laughs> Did you think about anything else or was on the media sort of the only option? I mean, you, I... That was my only option. That was my only option. You know, it was stay and do the media beat at NPR or go to On the Media. And Bob came into it just a little after that. And I was grateful because I had edited Bob when I was at All Things Considered. And we had a long and, uh, and friendly relationship for uh, years and years. I was an editor of All Things Considered in the late... I was... Rather, I should say, I was the editor of All Things Considered All right. in the late 80s. And, uh, and Bob was a contract reporter doing these bizarro Charles Kowalt stories. And, uh, and so I knew him and loved, loved his work. So you moved from D.C. to New York for the job? Uh, no, oh, I was here. already here. Okay. When we came back from Moscow, uh, we moved to New York because Fred was the New York reporter then for the Boston Globe. Fred Kaplan, my husband, and uh, upstairs right now. <laughs> who's upstairs right now? Being very uh, uh, quiet and <laughs> being appreciate quiet. it. And I uh, applied for the media beat, which could be done either from D.C., L.A., or New York. And so they gave it to me and let me do it in D.C. in in New York. So you've been in New York for twenty plus years. Yeah, that's otherwise I could never be in this house because this neighborhood was not anywhere near as expensive as it is now. It's a beautiful home. <laughs> <laughs> my sister lives downstairs. How do you feel about the media uh, social world in New York? There are uh, generational splits. When I was a kid, the Vietnam War created the uh, generation gap. Now it's, uh, it's how digitally literate you are and, uh, and how familiar you are with all these new modes of communication. I think it's wide open. So if you're, if you're interested in that generational divide... You've worked with tons of different producers, uh, Mike Pesca. Let's deal with Mike Pesca first, because he was such a kid on that show. I mean, he was, oh my God, in his early 20s, maybe younger than that, I think. And even then, he is probably the most brilliant, original mind that I've ever met. Then he was kind of like a genius adolescent on PCP. <laughs> now he's, uh, you know, he would make these, you know, the, the uh, kind of associative uh, logic that he comes up with, the, the routines, the kind of short stories he'll tell. I mean, the kind of brilliant things that he would just do, it left a huge, huge mark on the show always. Uh, he's someone who brings the personal and the a tremendous clarity, tremendous generosity of spirit, a kind of a goodness, as well as a kind of uncompromising intellect. And on top of it all is this layer of just goofiness. Uh, I just find him brilliantly engaging. There is no one else like him. So, I mean, you've been working on the show for 15 years. Uh, over these 15 years, the media has, uh, whether you want to say, uh, endured or capitalized on this massive technological shift. I'm interested in just in, in how the young people you're working with in a sort of macro sense ha have changed. Like the people who are the young people who are coming and working as producers on your show now, how are they different, if at all? Uh, From 15 years ago? Yeah. They, like, are, are, you, are you noticing anything about them? Well... That's a good question. The staff we have now has no sense of entitlement. They are completely committed to the program, and they are incredibly collaborative. I've never seen a group of people who work so closely together. You know, just this past uh, 
a week we were listening to the show and I said, uh, so who came up with that? And like three of them said, we did. You know, it was, <laughs> no one wanted to take individual credit. Uh, they have this freedom. They don't feel constrained by the forms, which is great. They have talents outside of this particular area. One is a classicist. One is a, you know, musician. The thing is, is that they really care. They care about what they're doing, and they're really, they're really happy to be where they are. There Is that been, new? Well, there have been times in the past where people clearly walked in and saw this as, you know, when do I get my show? Uh, we had one intern say, uh, how long does it take to get your own show? And uh, there are other people who came in with very strict notions of what is permissible and what isn't. They were... I think, more constrained in their views and maybe more anxious, weirdly, before, hmm. in the early days of the <laughs> collapse of the traditional media. They were more they anxious when now. there was a clearer path? But the path was never clear. Right. That's just it. In, you know, I would say that in the last, that it's been 15 years of collapse. So they walk into a business and all they see is confusion now they walk into the business and they say, all right, we know where newspapers are, TV, there are all these other areas. There's been the birth of, you know, a whole new medium that's starting to really get its feet, like uh, long form is part of. It is a wide open world that is much more improvisational and they go into it with that expectation. So I would say there's less anxiety now than there was 10 years ago. That's surprising. You guys should do a story about that. <laughs> I want to do uh, talk to you about editing a little bit. Yeah. The only place where I truly feel competent. Well, uh, it, as we talk about uh, the young people who work on your show, I spoke to some of them. Uh, you did? I did, yeah. <laughs> in the last couple of days. No kidding. Yeah. And uh, many of them, a majority of the people I spoke to, described you as the toughest editor they'd ever had. Wow. You mean people who actually work on the show now? That No, <laughs> no one who works there now. No one who works there. Every, everyone mm -hmm. was, uh, was, was beyond your grasp at this point. But yes, I, that was a thing I heard repeatedly, was that um, not that you were unfair, but that you were very, very tough. Mm -hmm. Does that sound right? Yeah, that's probably true. That's probably true. I mean, I don't know how, which editors they've had, but A, I have an incredibly short attention span. <laughs> B, I need things to be clear. I don't like a huge amount of temporizing, a lot of, uh, uh, what else would you call it, throat clearing, thumb sucking in a piece, unless there's something in the process of someone arriving at an idea that gives us a deeper understanding. I don't leave long pauses in unless the pauses have meaning. Everything needs to have meaning. All I care about is the hour, to make sure that every part of the hour has value. And, uh, and that means, you know, down to the smallest phrase or to the biggest idea. How it's not that I set out to be a tough editor. It's just that if I can hear it, if I can hear that it goes into sharper focus and clarity without a lot of the, you know, mumbly, jumbly stuff that people do when they're just working it through, then uh, I don't see why we need to, to bother with that. How often are you satisfied? I usually feel that I did the best that I could do. Now, let me explain the process very quickly, because... Most of the heavy lifting, and anybody who knows on, who's been on the show knows this, is done by the producer. Bob and I will do an interview. Maybe it'll go 40 minutes. By the time I get it, it might be 11 or 10. So by then, you know, it's up to me to get it down to seven. So it's that last bit, you know, or six. There are times when we'll do an hour-long interview and... The producer will honestly say, I can't get it under 37. Here it is. And then a lot of times it's because 
it needs to be 21 minutes long. You know, it's rare, but that does happen. We have an interview that's uh, coming out shortly about uh, a book about Aaron Schwartz called The Idealist by Justin Peters. Not a book that I ever thought would be a format breaker, but it's a really good interview and we can't seem to get it down. Everyone on the show goes, this interview is not supposed to be this long, but we can't get it down. So we're now in a process of going, do we just let it go really long because it holds the time? Or do we cut it down to the length that's sort of appropriate to the topic? You know, should it be half the show, a book about Aaron Schwartz? So, you know, that's the kind of thing. I really want to know whether, how often you are yeah, I happy am, with the show. Like I how, am. If, I, it feels to me okay. like a byproduct of being a tough editor is is never being satisfied yeah so that my so my question is <laughs> so i'm going to violate your stereotype here then because i would say that with the current staff this year and i look at the show as a whole i am satisfied at the end of the week that we have done the best we can that the problem a lot of the editing that I do, and that maybe the people that you've talked to, isn't just sitting down and slicing out bits of words. It's processing the ideas in the meeting, the things that I mentioned before. What are the stakes? Why should we care? Is this too inside? If it's an anecdote, does it offer a kind of, in microcosm, a much bigger idea. These are the questions that we apply to almost every single story. If I am dissatisfied, it comes at that place where we didn't sufficiently come up with the questions we needed to ask to make this truly relevant, valuable, and compelling. And if we did, then we didn't pull it off in the interview. You know, mm-hmm. that is where my dissatisfaction will come in. Not, not at the level of this interview went 35 seconds too long. That'll bother me for like, you know, maybe five minutes. But that interview we didn't pull off because we didn't sufficiently think it through. That is the source of my greatest frustration week after week. But currently, I think we've had the best year we've ever had. We've had more theme shows. We've had more integrated shows. We've had shows where one element really informs another. I'm I'm actually weirdly, inexplicably, and uncharacteristically pleased with the show these days. I'm so happy to hear that. (laughs) I think uh, you're right to sort of push back on exactly what I was asking about. I think the thing I was wondering, or maybe my theory, was that if you are reporting on the media... I assume that there is some pressure, some internal pressure to keep the bar incredibly high. If you're going to make your living criticizing the media and producing media that criticizes the media, I would expect that you feel some pressure to hold yourself to a very high standard. Right. And you think that that's because we are criticizing frequently our colleagues, our fellow journalists, and therefore uh, we better... uh, we better make sure that we aren't subject to the same criticisms that we uh, employ, that we hurl against others, right? That's what you mean? I think that is true to an extent. You know, are we, by addressing this particular media outrage, giving more oxygen to that outrage? We do quite a bit of that soul-searching as we proceed, but we're always, again, it's changing. We're, the whole culture of media is changing. That mid-century culture of objectivity that I actually that I describe in the book, it's, it's past. The rise of one-to-one media and the multiplicity of sources of information and the rise of civilians, citizen, amateur, unpaid, whatever you want to call it, journalism has shifted that standard. Also, the shift from trying to reach mass audiences to reaching uh, much more tiny slices of audience, fractured audience. All of that has done away with the culture of objectivity, which was uh, a commercial way to assemble the biggest audiences that you can get, which you all, you just finished, so you, you know why I've come to that conclusion. Uh, so Bob and I 
and the whole show have become more and more transparent about how we feel about things. And I think that that's good. We've always been much more transparent than standard public radio. We've always been more inflected. You know, if you read a movie critic over and over again, that that movie critic is always going to hate Woody Allen. So maybe you don't want to read them on Woody Allen or something like that. Um, But you know where they stand and you can put them in in a place. Bob and I frequently state our biases right in the beginning and say, okay, you know, news you can use. So we're going to proceed. We're going to be as honest and straightforward and as probing as we can. But you know what our principles are, and, and you can use them. And so we've always done that. Well, we're doing that more. How come? Because this is so tough. I was going to give you the easy answer, which is true, which is because we have been there so long we feel that we've earned it because the culture has shifted and is able to accept it the public radio audience understands it better i also feel that the sense of anxiety about what our values are as a nation has grown a lot more in me and I think in a, on a lot of people. And I think that if you, if you have a microphone and you have a set of values and you believe that they are American values, and look, I know that there are other people with microphones who feel the opposite from how I feel, but that's part of free speech and the public debate. But to shrink from expressing a value because you think your audience will get pissed off because you're not quote-unquote objective is a cop-out. I think it's cowardly. I think that some people have to do it. It's part of the culture of their particular media organization. But we make our own rules. And, you know, there's been a shift. The last line of your book is, you get the media that you deserve. (laughs) And I feel like another way of putting what you just said is, you're making the media that you think people deserve. Yeah, I hope so. I hope so, Max. I have one more question I want to ask Mm -hmm. you. So I was listening to to your show Mm -hmm. before we talked. This morning, uh, on my way here, in fact, I listened to this interview you did with Margaret Atwood about mm-hmm. the <laughs> crazy project where she's writing a book that's going to be read in 99 years. Yeah. Uh, lovely idea. Really <laughs> wonderful. And there's this moment in the interview where the two of you sort of start talking about... Um, what worries you, right? Yeah, that's where, I'm, that's where <laughs> I'm driving at. And she had this line which actually, I mean, it really struck me, which is that <laughs> young people worry uh, a lot more than older people do because the plot of their lives... Uh, isn't figured out yet. Mm-hmm. Are you worrying less? Yeah. I really am worrying less about me. I mean, that is true. I mean, we were talking about the world, and she sort of turned it a little bit into, she said, but look, it's not my problem anymore. There's only so much she cares a lot about pollution and, and so on, but it's not her problem anymore. I don't necessarily feel that that's, what's going on with me. But what's going on with me for sure is that I'm not going to get any richer or more famous than I am now. This is it. This is it. This is fine. This is better than I ever expected I would be, right? I don't have anything to risk anymore. My parents didn't last all that long. I mean, as far as I'm concerned, I want to just spend these this last decade or decade and a half or 20 years, who knows, just doing what I think is valuable. I don't have any career path anymore. I'm totally off the career path. The beautiful thing is that I just don't have any more fucks to give. I'm really glad to hear that. (laughs) Brooke, thanks so much for taking the time. Thank you.
Thanks for listening to Long Form. I'm Max Linsky. My co-hosts are Aaron Lammer and Evan Ratliff. Our editor is Jenna Weiss-Berman. Our intern this week, Courtney Harrell. Thanks to them. Thanks very much to our sponsors, Audible, Igloo, Squarespace, and of course our friends at MailChimp. But thanks most of all to Brooke Gladstone. That was a uh, truly delightful way to spend a Monday morning. And I feel like in the spirit of transparency, I should divulge that after the interview, uh, Brooke gave me one of those hats she makes. I'm wearing it right now. It's very warm. It's very nice. It's very appreciated. Not only did she give me a hat, but uh, I kept the tape rolling after we said our goodbyes. And we started talking about interviewing. And she had all this wonderful stuff to say about the art of the interview. She had all these tips. Uh, So we're going to include that here. It's sort of like a DVD extra or something. Uh, Enjoy. Here's Brooke Gladstone's tips for interviewing. We'll see you next week. First of all, do not be afraid of silence. Silence really works. If you just sit quietly, knowing that you can cut the silence later if it doesn't illuminate anything, especially if an interviewer might be hesitant because people are eager to fill silences, that will elicit information from people. Now, you're not interviewing people with whom you uh, inherently disagree, right? Or that you're uh, interrogating for the purposes of reporting. So this might not come up, but for anybody who wants to do this and needs to do it for that reason, just ask a question, and if they hesitate, just wait. Just wait. Another thing is ask a question twice or three times or four times or five times because each time they'll get closer. I mean, a lot of times I'll just reveal what I'm doing, like I'll ask a question and they'll say something, which is fairly obvious. And so I'll say, okay, so I'll stipulate this because we already know it's in the intro. What I'm trying to specifically get at is this. And then they might get closer and go, but no, but give me an example of how, you know, always ask for examples and then wait for them because people don't usually have them right on tap. That often illuminates more than a general statement. Always ask for an example when the general statement doesn't make any sense or doesn't clarify anything. Um, Another thing to do is, now again, this doesn't apply to you so much, Max, because these interviews are awful personal, but a lot of interviews we do aren't. And But if you ask, how did you end up doing this? You know, why do you care so much about this? That seems like an obvious thing, but often it's not on the paper. (laughs) And it, it is often one of the most revealing. Another thing is don't be afraid to start all over again. Sometimes we just get off on the wrong foot. Sometimes I'll just say to the interviewee, here's roughly where we want to go. I'm going to ask you this, this, but don't talk about this yet because I want to establish this first. And then I promise you I'll ask you about that. And that'll give them a shape so they won't try and answer every single question at the first question, you know? So a lot of times I'll reveal. I always thank them when they come in, even on the phone. I always acknowledge that they're giving me their time. Whether or not they're selling a book or, you know, it, it helps them to be on a program. I mean, whatever their reasons are, they're doing me a favor. I'm not paying them. So I always thank them. I tend to elicit honesty by being honest myself. I mean, one of my most common things to say is, I don't get it. I just don't understand. Or, you know, wait a minute, are you saying that because just having a human reaction prompts another human reaction? So the less formal you are, that doesn't mean say fucking shit because that puts people off. But the less formal you are in the way, don't read, you know, just look at the question and then take your eyes off the page and just say it in your own words. I mean, that's... That's a kind of a beginner's tip, but it really, really always helps. You know, they'll be as real as you give them space to be. If they haven't been real with you, 
Uh, sometimes they just resolutely refuse, but a lot of times you haven't given them the space. I guess put yourself in their shoes. Do you feel like you've been real? <laughs> I think I've been way too real. <laughs> Why do you run? Why does anyone? I always thought that runners loved running, and that's not the case. Most runners hate running, <laughs> but they choose to do it. In the new docu-series Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers learns why women runners everywhere are driven to go the distance. It really is about taking my power back and proving myself wrong. Team Milk is about fueling women's performance and helping them along their marathon journeys. You can sign up now for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon, taking place in Savannah, Georgia, on November 16th, 2024. Learn more and register at everywomansmarathon.com. Hey, this is Scott Galloway, author, professor, entrepreneur, and most importantly, host of the Prop G podcast. We got a special series running on right now called The Future of Work, where I answer all your questions on, surprise, The Future of Work. Questions including, what are we missing when we work remotely? Or how do we handle work-life balance when a major opportunity comes knocking? From the provocative to the technical, we're offering insights you won't want to miss. So tune in to The Future of Work, a PropGPod special sponsored by Canva. You can find it on the PropGPod wherever you get your podcasts. 